Finding your perfect home was hard, but thanks to Burrow, furnishing it has never been easier. Burrow's easy-to-assemble modular sofas and sectionals are made from premium, durable materials, including stain and scratch-resistant fabrics. So they're not just comfortable and stylish, they're built to last. Plus, every single Burrow order ships free right to your door. Right now, get 15% off your first order at burrow.com slash ACAST. That's 15% off at burrow.com slash ACAST. Tired of ads barging into your favorite news podcasts? Good news. Ad-free listening is available on Amazon Music for all the music plus top podcasts included with your Prime membership. Stay up to date on everything newsworthy by downloading the Amazon Music app for free or go to amazon.com slash news ad free. That's amazon.com slash news ad free to catch up on the latest episodes without the ads. You will see the biggest deficit ever forecast in these figures. And we are looking somewhere north of $200 billion. And you can see for a coalition backbench that has been talking debt and deficit since Tony Abbott. Like, these are extraordinary figures. This week, the total gross debt will go past $700 billion. Well, hello, everybody. Welcome to another episode of Australian Politics Live. You are with Catherine Murphy, political editor of Guardian Australia, and in the pod cave with me are two wonderful gentlemen. G'day. You sure? (laughs) We've really confused Shane Wright. Anyway. It uh, does not take much to confuse me, let me assure you. Shane's lost it already and we're less than a minute in. Anyway, uh, to my left is Shane Wright, the... I always do this. I always what? pause significantly because yeah, you're not economics. No, you're not, not. You're not economics editor. Ross Gitton would exactly. would have kittens. I, In fact, no, well, most of our the SMH's readership would go. What well, what has gone it's on? It's the Gitton's effect that pauses me every time. But you're but you're you're an important economics correspondent. Apparently, yes. Well, I it, can count. That's that's it. That, that is that's well the special that, skill. That is a well known fact of you, Shane. Shane Wright. From the artists normally known as Fairfax, but now the Let's nine, go the age and SMH. Yes, the age and SMH, important economics correspondent. Yeah. You're no. not going to give me your actual title, are you? Senior just economics gonna, correspondent. Thank you. Senior, senior you economics. I was waiting for this. Sorry, Dals. Anyway, we do this on every economics podcast. You can tell what the subject of the pod is today anyway. And to my right is Paul Carp, who is in my team at Guardian Australia and all round, well- I don't know, expert about skills and legal matters. Job trainer, job tinker, job Job, soldier, uh, all of them. Job job spy. Yes, exactly. Anyway. I'm I'm thinking like the movie Widow, K2 Widowmaker. We're we're getting into these sorts of terminologies now with uh, all these uh, descriptions. Well, well, look, before we move on to the chat, in case we've lost you by our stupid banter, uh, and in case you haven't been following closely, our job banter relates to the ever-expanding program of interventions on the part of the Morrison government. We have Job Seeker, we have Job Keeper, we have job trainer, which we'll talk a little bit about today. This is one I'm missing, though. Job maker. Job maker. What was job maker? Job maker was when he went to the press club and it was a lot of the same material as today about adding conditions to federal funding on skills to the states. Yeah. But it was called job maker, job maker. when he first did it a month ago. Okay. So and now it's job trainer. Is there a home maker? 
Home, home, home builder. Home builder. Home maker sounds oh, yeah, very yeah, yeah. anti PC home for builder. the Guardian, well, let me well, tell well, you. Well, that's well, exactly. There is home builder, isn't there? That's, that's the renovation right. one. Yes. Yes. We're have not, have we covered them all? Um, I'm that's sh- the lot, I think. There are, in, in all honesty, more than 100 separate things going on. And even the government is having tra- trouble. Trouble keeping up, yes. So and, and, and the dictionary is sort of running out and the thesaurus is running out of descriptors well, anyway, uh, for perhaps, what they're up to. Perhaps we could open the book for uh, the pod listeners. If you can get in touch with all of us. We're all very traceable on social media. If you've got any thoughts about the next iteration of job, open brackets, dot, 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 close brackets. Insert word here. Insert word here. Get in touch. But anyway, we'll start with something simple, the labour market, Shane. Jobs. Um, jobs, yes. So on the day we're recording, which is Thursday, we have uh, had the Australian Bureau of Statistics give us the latest snapshot of the Australian labour market, and that is the numbers for June. Shane takes up the story. It's one of the more interesting jobs reports that you'll ever see because- a series of records, both good and bad, have been set on the one day. Biggest increase in the number of jobs in a single month, 210,000. Mm. Biggest increase in hours worked in a month, 4%. Biggest increase in participation rate in a single month, about 1.3 percentage points. Yoo-hoo! Mm. And uh, Scott Morrison was talking about it's Australia's fighting back. Yes. But then I went to my ancient, is it Greek or Roman, with uh, King Pyrrhus, to talk about uh, be careful for these great victories because yeah. I don't know if I can afford any more anymore because on the other side of the ledger, there are now 992,000 people unemployed. It's the highest number ever unemployed. We have lost somewhere around 360,000, 370,000 full-time jobs in four months. That is a record for a collapse in full-time employment. Mm. Of the 210,000 jobs that were created... All of them and a few more were part-time as yeah. people came back into that, particularly where you'd expect we're talking about accommodation and hospitality of those part-time jobs have started to come back. You have the highest unemployment rate since 1998 at 7.4%. And it would be, by my calculations, north of 12. Yes. Once you take into account, let's see, the 370,000 people who've just disappeared from the jobs market, they aren't there. Are they, yeah, because I, I did write the news today, but I didn't have time to delve to that extent. So, because participation improved, but there's still a bunch of people sitting out. Oh, yeah, close to 400,000. There mm. are 230,000 people who were considered employed, but they didn't lift a pen, didn't serve a coffee, mm. didn't make a bed. Zero hours. Zero hours. Zero hours. So you, you would start adding them in. Then there's of there's another about million people who said, right, I didn't have enough, I need more hours. That includes 130,000 people who fit the description of full-time. Mm. They worked more mm. than 35 hours. But even these 130,000 said, no, I need more hours. You've got... Uh, Western Australia's unemployment rate hit 8.7. It's the highest since 94. Victoria and is at 7.5, higher since 98-ish. 
New South Wales is at 6.9, highest since about mm. 98-ish. So there's all these other, there's all these threads going on and we know that this was taken at the best possible time. This survey, it's about thirty to 40,000 people were surveyed in the first two weeks of June. So before we... Before, bef- before the second Before wave. Victoria, before, before we started wave. working mm. out all the postcodes of Melbourne and knowing that we we're going to shut down, knowing that before we shut Victoria off at the down at the Lincoln Causeway in Albury-Wodonga, that all takes place post these things. Mm. So you can t- before we started talking whether we're going to have an AFL grand final in Brisbane. Yeah. So that will feed into J- July. So that means right a couple of things. One, it's probably going to get worse through July. It pushes back the recovery, and it puts more focus on what happens in September when JobKeeper ends and the coronavirus supplement, which goes to JobSeeker parenting payment recipients, people on farm, household income support, people on youth, kids on youth allowance. Yeah. That all ends around the same time. So you've just pushed everything back. Well, there's a cliff instead of, well, you know, the cliff still looms basically. Well, unless the government can, you know, make it not a cliff, but... The the cliff is... Something has got taller. Precipitous. Mm. Yes. Well, before we analogy ourselves to death, if that's even possible, um, we will come back to that thought in terms of income support and what happens next. So that's a pretty eloquent picture. We might go to Paul now and, and skills. So... The day before the unemployment numbers were released, the government briefed on a major skills package, a $2 billion odd investment that includes potentially some matching contributions from the states that will happen if the states accept an overhaul of vocation, education, training, architecture. It's pretty obvious from the picture Shane's just given us you know, why you would do that in terms of the conceptual thing sitting behind it. But what did you make of that? Well, I I think they knew that the unemployment figure was going to be bad and they wanted to be be able to point to something to say that they are um, trying to keep people in in work and that there are options for for school leavers that that aren't going um, straight on to to JobSeeker. So the the two main planks of the policy are it's $1.5 billion expanding the wage subsidies for apprentices so that it's not just apprentices employed by small businesses but now also medium businesses that can get up Mm -hmm. to 50% of their wage wages from the government now, up to a capped amount of 7000 a quarter. So that is not trying to encourage new apprentices. That's just trying to stop the system going off a cliff of cancellations of apprenticeships and employers dropping them. Mm. So it, it's a very defensive move, just trying to keep existing apprentices attached to those jobs before we even get to the conversation of like, how do you get more apprenticeships yeah. created? Yeah, it is interesting that it is a sort of, as you put it, I think correctly, a defensive measure because it's it doesn't sort of create an incentive for employers to put on more apprentices. It just creates an incentive for them to keep the apprentices that they already have. I was going to ask, Paul, I thought there's a suggestion that because this is a policy that was announced in March, that the take-up rate hasn't been what was expected as well and that people are laying off apprentices. Mm. apprentices. So this is not just defensive, but hold on, Houston, we've got a bit of a problem here. Mm. It's not working quite as what we'd expect, which is 
exactly what you'd expect, that there are all these policies being thrown together. Yeah. Some may not work as you'd expect. Yeah, well, so the first $1.3 billion kept 80,000 apprentices in work, but 16,000 have had their apprenticeships cancelled or, or, or been laid off since. So the policy also tries to put the, um, you know, the jack back in the box by getting a different employer, a new employer, to pick up those people who've had their apprenticeships cancelled. Because once an apprentice qualifies, if they were employed on the right date, they're eligible for a wage subsidy and a new employer can come along and, and, and pick them up. So they're, they're trying to reattach people to the, to the workforce by doing that, by picking up those 16000 That's $72,000 a job. Just, just saying. Like it is, uh, yeah. It's not. Uh, this this ain't cheap. Well, and and interestingly, the Productivity Commission had something to say about the concept of wage subsidies and apprentices a bit earlier in the year. Um, I.e., that mightn't actually be the best vehicle. Yes, they were. They were saying that um, you know wage subsidies can't make up for all for very much of the costs of employing apprentices. So they were suggesting maybe we need to lower the costs of apprenticeships by looking at the minimum wage. I think that might be more of a kind of pre-COVID thought though, yes. directed yeah, yeah, at yeah, yeah, wage just, subsidies as they were in the in the yeah. previous budget rather than yes, these than huge these, stonking programs exactly. of kind of fifty percent of the of the apprentices' be, wage. Because they subsidizing get, jobs. That yeah. would go down well right now, cutting the wages <laughs> Of apprentices who aren't paid all that well to begin with. No, true. No, no. Sounds, yes, sounds, sounds absolutely perfect in a perfect yes, world. Yes, in, in a seminar. Well, in the PC world, yeah, it would in, be perfect. In a yeah. seminar. But anyway, and, and the other element of this program too is the training component, these short courses, which obviously there's you know, a fair subsidy for low or no cost training courses across a range of not really clearly specified Areas. Growth, growth areas. Growth areas, which it brings us back to, to the labour market. But. Well, this is actually a policy that was tried during the 91 recession, short-term courses, and they were put on back then. I only know this because there is a very large piece that I've written for the Saturday's uh, Herald and Age talking to people who dealt with the last recession, and uh, all of them were at the policy coalface, and this was, yeah, that's partly what you did. You, you tried to get younger people in particular, trained. The unemployment, the youth unemployment rate uh, in the figures today is at 16.4. Mm. It has lifted by five percentage points in three months. Mm. So you can see the policy rationale behind what the government's doing. You put on short prog- training programs, right? We've done that previously. These will skew towards younger people and they're the ones copping it in the neck in terms of being laid off. This might be a chance. One, get them out of the jobs market. Yeah. So, right, exactly. they're not, we yeah. don't have to worry about that employment, but yeah. we'll, we'll actually give them some skills. And that's the problem that you find in out of recessions. The longer you're out of the jobs market, the, the, the quicker your skills you are, you know, deplete. But it's, it's not only skills depletion in this environment, because you know, there would be a bunch of kids who, you know, maybe recent graduates from an institution with a particular skill set in conferencing. Or something, right? You know, or who have qualifications in an industry that is going to be severely disrupted by this pandemic for quite a long period of time. So even though they've been through a process equipping themselves for the the pre-COVID labour market, they then may have to quite quickly recalibrate 
and equip themselves for the COVID labour market. Yeah, I don't know so, if a degree in tourism management is going to help well, you right well, at the moment. Well, this is, is the thing that you can think, you can actually think of, of a bunch, if you stop, give yourself two seconds to think about this, a bunch of professions that people will have just spent time qualifying for in their various institutions that, I mean, m- may come back on the other side of, you know, when, when there is actually a COVID recovery as opposed to what we're in now. But, you know, they, they just might have to think on their feet and I suppose this gives them options. But still, I guess my, my query would be, you know, there's, there's nothing wrong with obviously a program of training people to, to give them different skills, but it doesn't mean there's a job at the end of the, the skills development. So I don't know, what did your wise men of 1991 have to say about this? That it's a slow grind, mm. and that's and that's ultimately the issue. We, if you look at it, there are what about somewhere between one and a half and two million people who are out of work of some description, and then there's three and a half million still on JobKeeper. That's your problem. Mm. There's there's your real problem, mm. and you've got all these other headwinds. Right? Let's say Melbourne gets on top of its corona outbreak. Prime Minister Mark McGowan says, oh yes, we'll allow, we'll deign to allow East Coasters into the yeah. uh, the Republic of Western Australia. Yeah. That's fine, but then the virus is still out there somewhere. Our international borders are cut off. Our immigration program yes. is absolutely cactus. And, now, and that's a major driver. In terms of, of cactus, there were yeah. figures this week that from the ABS showing that the number of permanent migrants into the into the country was a hundred thousand fewer in June this year than last. That's look, that's an expletive here load of people that aren't permanently in the country, let alone the tourists who are pretty important. But that doesn't include the people who permanently would leave, although Australians are discovering it's a bit difficult to get out of the country, let alone get into the country. So that migration aspect, you've seen, say, the UNSW job losses that have been announced, that's the higher ed taking a hit. And these things are just going to roll on and just roll on. Mm. And that's why recessions are bad things. Yeah, recessions are terrible things. And and despite the Prime Minister's sort of upbeat tone, and I'm not saying this in a snippy way in this instance because I genuinely think Prime Ministers in these circumstances have a role to play in trying to instill confidence you know, because if obviously if Morrison stood up and did the full Jeremiah, it's you know it's pretty bad. It's like you know what we, when you're going to have to include subtitles for, for Jeremiah. You do know that. <laughs> but you, you Paul know Cup's what I mean. looking very confused right now. I am. I'll confess you, that on tape. Yeah. Oh, okay. Oh, God. Oh, well, it's one of those. But uh, we should Is it do a biblical reference. Yeah, it's a biblical. Okay. Reference. Oh, well, that's, that's well. They're, start. They're, I'm obvi- well, that's it. Like a biblical. Reference at the Guardian. What My about, goodness, I is thought it? it was biblical then? until you hopped in, and then I thought maybe it was like a that, '60s uh, pop thing. No. Well, How yeah. old do you think I am, Paul? He, has, he hasn't started singing yet. Does the hair shirt work oh, as yes. a reference? Right, yeah. like so. If, you, if you're up there, kind of like chest beating and saying, "Oh, you know, Christ, it's all stuffed." You know, if you if you do a Paul Keating, you know, we're a banana republic. Perhaps, although I mean that was that, there that was a was, purpose for that. that was a, yeah. It was purposeful. That intervention was purposeful. It's more like Rudd and Swan through the GFC, yeah. and um, then Glenn Stevens and now Phil Lowe from the Reserve Bank 
Trying to be optimistic. Yes, exactly. And that is actually what you want from your Prime Minister, your yeah. Treasurer and yeah. your RBA Governor. Exactly. So that, so I'm not having a crack at Morrison for being, you know, look, let's try and, what did he say today? Lift his lift our heads up or something? Yeah, that's, we were, that's fine. Something like that, right? I, because I, that's the, the job, right? Well, the bigger aspect was the fact that we're, like, we're winners. And as I noted in our office, we this is a country that celebrates a failure. On April twenty five, <laughs> every year, religiously. every year. But mm. like, but let's be let's be let's be we're winners yes. for this purpose. Okay, so we're winners. That's fine. Um, he obviously needs to say this these things. It's part of the job. But look, the economy it's pretty bad, isn't it? And the the positives that he showed up were things like of the two hundred and ten thousand jobs that were added, sixty percent of them were women and fifty percent of them were youth. But uh, of course, it's it's from the low base of yes, those having the been base. the groups who yeah, who were who worst hit got, by the COVID recession to begin with. Got smacked. So yeah. it's you know it, it's it's easy to say when there's so much potential for recovery in those groups because they've been hit the hardest. But you know were the programs being targeted specifically at them on on the way down when they were being the hardest hit or are we just celebrating the recovery in those groups because it's one of the few positive things that, that you we can, can grab kind from of grab. It. Yeah, it's, it's, it's an interesting thought. So, again, without trying to talk us to an absolute standstill and make us all just go into our bedrooms, close the door and pull the doona over the head and never never come out again, things are bad they look bad. They look like they're going to be bad for a period of time. I can't remember the last time somebody started talking about a V-shaped recovery. I think that's kind of gone, seems to be gone, 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 right? And it's bad globally as well, uh, which is also bad for us. So which brings us to the point about income support and next week. We expect that the government will provide an update to Australia's economic outlook will deliver a sort of mini MIFO or for want of a better, you know, I don't know, I don't even know what we call this thing. But anyway, we get data about... A stopping on point on the way to the main budget in October. Thank you. That's that's nice, actually. That's like a rest stop. I like a rest stop, yeah. yeah. A rest stop on the, on the way to the budget in October. So we get a whole bunch of uh, Treasury's latest... You know, uh, prognostications. Thank you. That was exactly the word I was reaching for prognostications about the economy. And we also expect some sort of more broad direction about what happens with job keeper and job seeker. Anybody got any? Well, I'm, I, we've given up predictions, but any thoughts on that front? What do we reckon? Well, I think the two things that are guaranteed to change about job keeper are people that ordinarily earned less than $1,500 a fortnight will not still be getting $1,500 a fortnight because that's a way that you can pair the program back without having a political fight because Labor has signalled right from the start that they didn't agree with that, um, uh, that aspect of it. And the other one is businesses having to re-qualify for JobKeeper because when it was a six-month program, you qualified once at the start and then you got it every month, you know, provided you had the downturn in revenue at the start. But now to pair it back, they need, you know, some businesses have recovered, so they need to take it off off the ones that, that aren't still feeling the pain. And Sally McManus, uh, the ACTU secretary, has said that the union movement can, can see the argument to do that and they, they wouldn't stand in the way of that. So I think those are the two mm-hmm. most painless changes that can be made and, and, and likely will be made. Shane? The job trainer program, the apprenticeship uh, wage subsidy, is ultimately 
JobKeeper under a, a yeah, different a name. Different it really is. Yeah. And so, and that's been extended to March. Mm. So I think that you've got the giveaway there where the next point will be. So remember, this was the, the, all the discussion about the fiscal cliff in September. Yeah. Right. Now it's a uh, fairly deep ravine, yeah. but it's been pushed back to, to, March. to March. So I think the announcement today is a pretty clear signal in that space about their, their thinking on time. But ultimately, as a budget nerd, my focus is also on the forecasts, the forecasts yeah. because you will see the biggest deficit ever forecast in these figures. And we are looking somewhere north of $200 billion. And you can see for a coalition backbench that has been talking debt and deficit since Tony Abbott was a boy. Well, before Tony Abbott knighted Phil. Well, yes. The, pre, the pre-knighthood Pre-knighthood Tony mm-hmm. um, is going to go, oh, my Lord, mm-hmm. after a deficit which could be in the year just completed between 90 and 100. Mm-hmm. Like, these are e- extraordinary figures. This week, the total gross debt will go past 700 Billion. In fact, it already it has this week because they borrowed another seventeen billion uh, on Wednesday or Tuesday. It was so you've got that will coalesce the mind of a fair few coalition backbenchers about oh my goodness. And then these are only two year forecasts they're giving about the economy and the like and the budget deficit. But then it doesn't take much to go. How the hell are we going to repay that? And you can see that argument. Oh, well, formulating away well, right it's now. been brewing for the last couple of months. Mm. And But what do you think, though, guys? Like, I totally agree with that. You know, the, it's sort of been quite beneficial to Morrison in this crisis. Well, well, well I mean, this is kind of stupid rationale in a way, but it's sort of like the crisis has given Morrison maximum room to move, right? He's, he's, it's enabled the government to shapeshift in full public view, and with very limited pushback. I mean, the pushback certainly exists and it's been growing in volume, but it has, it's given, uh, Morrison has been given the capacity by the government as a whole to present this idea of the coalition to the public, right? So, but the question in all this is how long is that piece of string? Like, at what point does the sort of internal weight of opinion in the government start to pull the Prime Minister in a different direction. And then you focus on the on the debt chain which and the, and the deficit, which obviously we all should because it, it matters and it's important. But at the same time, you know, what, what the economy will need is stimulus, you know. It's- and you've reached that tension because, as we say, this is the rest stop on the way to the October budget. Yeah. We've already reported that they are cobbling together a small business package, somewhere around $10 billion, maybe $15 billion. Mm-hmm. Every economist and his German shorthead pointer are arguing that you do need, say, in an infrastructure space. Yeah. Remember that tax reform discussion that uh, Morrison kicked off as post? That has to be start. You, you can't delay that because, put it bluntly, you're in October – if you start thinking about an election in yeah. the second half of next year, yeah. you're not you can't run a tax reform package debate in such a short period of time, especially if you are convinced you're going to be broad and open. Yeah, it's like there's going to be lots of lots of flowers blooming and dying in that period of well, time. Well, yeah, it's sort of 
I mean, there's, I'm not raising this question because there's a, there's a, you know, there's a pet answer to it. There actually isn't one, but it's just a sort of an interesting process that Morrison's looking at sort of over the next several months. I mean, at one level, picking up Shane's point about reform, Paul, reform is the sort of, it's like a stun gun, you know, with the, <laughs> with the more ideological, let's just say, you know, the bits of the government who will be inclined to fret about increased deficits, debts, etc. You can tell, you can basically project the holy grail of reform, right, as the payola for why we're spending all this money and why, you know, the, the end result will be pivoting the economy to a place that we neoliberal characters are all rather happier with, right? Mm. But... You know, that's a really difficult thing. Do you, do you think he's got it in him to do this little switcheroo? I'll keep spending the money, guys, but I will give you this, you know, I will give you tax reform, I will give you labour market reform, I will give you this other stuff. Uh, well, I I think that um, while they have done some things that are very uncharacteristic uh, for a coalition government like the huge wage, wage subsidy um, job keeper, they have along the line also been doing some things that are a bit, you know, more red meat to the base type things like allowing people to access their superannuation mm, early, that's true. Uh, yeah. industrial relations, flexibility, talking about a deregulation and faster approval of projects and that sort yeah. of thing. So he he had to do the shift on the big things, but there are some of the true colours that you can see all along. And where it will go from here, I think it is largely dictated by what's happening with the health response because, you know, a few weeks ago when every state was moving in the direction of easing restrictions, like you were starting to get more tension with coalition MPs saying, you know, oh, we could end, end JobKeeper yeah. even, even sooner than September or, yeah. you know, take it off certain certain sectors so that, you know, the hardest hit can, like tourism can have it for longer. But those those arguments fell away pretty quickly when, you know, Victoria had to go in the other no, direction no, of locking down. This is so. what we're saying, right, that it's sort of like it. The, the events give Morrison cover to preserve the fiscal support. I think it will be enough. Just the backbench gives him a lot more latitude than Malcolm Turnbull ever got. So, but the question is, how long the latitude yeah, extends? It's for now. Yeah, it it's is now. Yeah, yeah. and like, yeah, you've quoted Cindy Lauper talking true colours. Mm. That's like Cindy was there with Madonna. Yeah, and, and us. Who, and let's, us. Let's but be honest. Who was the bigger the power ultimately? Goes. Cindy had the better voice, yeah. but Madonna was the one who kept going, powering on, was able to reincarnate to change her characterisation yes. to, to yes. the masses. Whether Morrison can do that as you develop a new, as you develop budget policy while the audience is going and the backbench is going, oh, hold on, this isn't what I signed up for. I wanted true colours. Yeah. I didn't want Vogue. Uh -huh. Like this, You can see that, that that tension, and you're exactly right, Murph, is going to continue because, right, we can, see, we can see to next week for the economic statement. Then we get to October, but then the election really moves up in the lights pretty quickly. Yeah. How am I going to fight this campaign? And, and if unemployment is still what, 7 8% next year? It's funny, I was only thinking today, it is, it is less than a fortnight since the Eden Monero by-election. Yeah, I know, it feels okay. like about three years, but that is true. Yet in Eden Monero, like we had all the discussion going in about super popular ScoMo yeah. getting people over the line. Yeah. It didn't happen. Yeah, it didn't happen. So yeah. we, 
we really, and all the all the public polls we've seen is still showing it is really tight between the major parties. Yeah, and and the point of that, I mean, I'm not you're on a really good roll there, and I would, I'm reluctant to cut you off, but I, you do that. But no, no, but I think I I think I might be going where you were going. Anyway, we'll argue about this afterwards if it wasn't. But that that idea of what gets you, what wins you an election is part of the story here in the sense of that internal uh, that internal muscling up that will start to happen. We've been in this extraordinary period in Australian politics since COVID of this dialing down of of ideology, of partisanship, of conflict, of, you know, of that kind of sense of a big major party clash. Like, we've been out of that. We've been out of that so long we forget that that's actually the foundation of the system. As we move more into an election cycle, I think this is where you're going, love. Yeah, those normal pressures will assert themselves. But anyway, we've been raving on, and that's a whole other pod, really. So let's cut it off here at Cindy Lauper and Madonna, which I salute you for. Well, I saw Cindy Lauper live. She was fantastic. Oh, you Let- didn't. I did. I did at the old Sydney Entertainment Centre <sighs> and uh, drove down from Bathurst just to see her with some mates and there you go. I hate you. <laughs> I mean, I love you, but I hate you. And and Paul knows these musical references. Yes, yeah. yeah ex- exactly. So we've squared our generational circle beautifully. Thank you so much for listening. We really do appreciate it as always. Thank you to Miles Martignoni, who is the executive producer of the show. Thank you to Hannah Izzard. You know what to do. Subscribe, share, tell your friends, etc. We'll be back next week. I see your true colours. <laughs> there was no restraining him. I'm sorry. Tired of ads barging into your favorite news podcasts? Good news. Ad-free listening is available on Amazon Music for all the music plus top podcasts included with your Prime membership. Stay up to date on everything newsworthy by downloading the Amazon Music app for free or go to amazon.com slash news ad free. That's amazon.com slash news ad free to catch up on the latest episodes without the ads. When you drive a vehicle so reliable it's backed by a 10-year, 100,000-mile limited warranty, you stop thinking about what you can't do and start doing what you never thought possible. Visit your local Kia dealer today to see what you're capable of in a vehicle that inspires confidence around every corner. Kia. Movement that inspires. Call 800-333-4KIA for details. Always drive safely. Limited inventory available. Warranties include 10-year, 100,000-mile powertrain and 5-year, 60,000-mile basic. Warranties are limited. See retailer for details.